I invite you to open your Bibles and turn with me to our scripture reading in connection with the sermon on Lord's Day 48. We'll first turn to Isaiah chapter 45, and then 1 Corinthians 15. Isaiah 45, the first seven verses. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him and loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors so that the gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places that you may know that I, the Lord, who call you by your name, am the God of Israel. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, my elect, I have even called you by your name. I have named you, though you have not known me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. There is no God besides me. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. And we turn to the New Testament. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 15, verses 20 through 28. One Corinthians fifteen verse twenty, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death, for he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. So far, our reading from Holy Scripture. We'll also read from our confession, Lord's Day 48. Which is how we have summarized what Scripture says about the second petition. And here we confess the following. What is the second petition? Your kingdom come, that is, so rule us by your word and spirit, that more and more we submit to you. Preserve and increase your church. Destroy the works of the devil, every power that raises itself against you and every conspiracy against your holy word. Do all this 
until the fullness of your kingdom comes, wherein you shall be all in all. After the proclamation of God's word, we will voice our amen together by singing from hymn 84, stanzas 1, 2, 3, and 4. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, as New Testament believers, we live between two great events in redemptive history. We live between the first coming and the second coming of Christ. We believe that His kingdom has come, but we confess also that it is coming. It's here already now, and it will come in fullness. And it's because we live between these two realities that Christ has taught us to pray your kingdom come. And we're going to consider what this petition means then in our life and through the church and in fullness. We're going to consider what this petition means, may your kingdom come, what that means for us in our life, in the church, and in fullness. So when Christ teaches us to pray your kingdom come, that implies, of course, that there is a king. And that king is God. If God has a kingdom, it means he is a king. And that's something that scriptures speak about in the most majestic terms. We sang from that, for example, from Psalm 93, The Lord is king and robed with majesty. He girds himself with strength and equity. Therefore, the world established by his hand cannot be moved, but shall forever stand. And also from Psalm 45, also from the book of praise, your kingdom will from age to age extend of your dominion. There will be no end. The Bible tells us that God is a God above all gods. He is clothed in majesty and splendor. The psalmist says the clouds are his chariots. He assigns the limits of the oceans and the sea, and his hands form the dry land. And these portions of Scripture tell us that God is the almighty ruler. He is the king of heaven and earth. He holds everything in his hands, even the hearts of men, even the hearts of people like Cyrus. We read that from Isaiah 45. God appointed Cyrus, king of Persia, to be his servant, even though he did not know God. God used this pagan king to bring his people back from exile to Jerusalem. So God's power extends over all things. He rules over creation, but he also rules over the human population. And he rules history from the beginning of the world until now, and he will do so forever. And he is not only king of the physical earth and a physical realm, but also of the spiritual realm. He says, I form light and create darkness. Again, Isaiah 45. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. He does all these things. And so we might ask ourselves, well, if this is true, then why do we still have to pray your kingdom come? When John the Baptist began preaching, he proclaimed the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But note that he did not say that the kingdom of heaven had finally arrived but he said, it is near, it is at hand. For in the arrival of the Son of God upon earth, 
the full actualization of the kingdom of God had come closer. Because, congregation, it's true, the kingdom of God has always existed, hasn't it? From the beginning of the world. But we also believe and confess, along with Scripture, that the kingdom of God advances. God reigns and has always reigned and will always reign. We read from 1 Corinthians 15 that He does this through His Son. God will put all things in subjection under Christ. Paul speaks about this in Ephesians chapter 1 as well, where he writes that God has raised Christ far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age that is to come. So that means then that everything in this world, the hurricanes, the changes of the seasons, the migration of whales and and, and birds and and the flight path of every single star, the whims of every dictator, and the prime ministers of this world are all subject to Christ. So then, God's influence cannot be enlarged, can it? So then again, is it not somewhat superfluous to pray, your kingdom come? Well, we need to understand that although it is absolutely true that everything and everyone is subject to the kingship of God and of Christ, not everyone acknowledges this. It was that way once, long ago, before the fall into sin. Then God, or then men and angels and all creatures, including Satan, acknowledged God as king, but not anymore because there was rebellion in heaven. Satan rebelled against God. He was the most magnificent creature God had created, but he rebelled. He wanted to be like God, and he wanted to set himself on God's throne. And so he rebelled against his master, and he took all of creation down with him. He enticed the subjects of God's kingdom on earth also to rebel against their creator and to commit the same sin that he had committed, to try and put themselves on God's throne. And so the kingdom of darkness began. And now, now there are two kingdoms that exist. There's God's kingdom and the kingdom of Satan. The kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. And these two kingdoms stand diametrically opposed to one another. And the kingdom of darkness has also infiltrated the kingdom of light, like like weeds in a field of grain. You could say that earth has now become occupied territory. And the effects of that occupation are noticeable. They were noticeable already immediately after the fall into sin. Right? Adam and Eve ran away from God. Cain murdered his brother. And today Satan continues to wage war against God and his church. Revelation 12, the Apostle John tells us there that Satan is full of fury because he knows that his time is short. And his hatred of God and of God's people is intensified because He knows that Jesus Christ is coming back to judge the world, including him. To throw him and all his demons into the lake of fire. And so the Apostle Peter describes him as a roaring lion going about seeking whom he may devour. He wants to devour God's people. And that raises another question. Well, if that is true, is God still king? Is he still really king? If the kingdom of Satan still exists, can we really sing the Lord is king and robed with majesty? 
right? When you look around this world, what do we see? We see all the sin and the corruption, the injustice, the horrific evil, the hatred of people for one another. We might ask ourselves, where now is the kingdom of God? Some even claim God has abandoned the world to Satan. My dear brothers and sisters, nothing could be further from the truth. Oh, it's certainly true, God could have abandoned the world to Satan, but he didn't. That's what Satan was after. He would have loved that, but God did not allow that to happen. God is king and he remains king. He is who he is, and so he always has a kingdom, and he cannot abandon his kingship, and he didn't. He is not and cannot ever be without subjects. If he did that, he would deny his own character. So immediately after the fall, he initiated the covenant and the promise of the covenant that there would come one who would defeat this evil one, Satan. And so in his incomprehensible grace and mercy, he he broke into the kingdom of darkness and he rescued Adam and Eve from the grip of Satan out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. And he promised them that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And immediately he began to work out that promise. And the entire Old Testament shows how God was busy doing this. So Satan never stood a chance. Many times it seems to people as if God is losing and Satan is winning. But that's because we don't see the big picture. We don't see what God sees. There were only eight people in the ark floating on the waters. God preserved his church and his kingdom. And when men built the Tower of Babel, they wanted to make a name for themselves. God scattered them and their pretensions over the face of the earth. And throughout history, Satan's attempts at destroying the kingdom of God failed again and again and again. Think of Egypt and Pharaoh. Pharaoh tried to kill all the baby Hebrew boys. It didn't work. Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar, they could not destroy the kingdom of God. King Herod couldn't either. They all had to bow to God's plan. Every single one of them. And so did Cyrus. This pagan king, God made him a shepherd of Israel, says the prophet Isaiah. And he used this king to work out his plan of redemption so that Messiah would come into the world and Satan could not stop him. And of course, when the Son of God hung on the cross, Satan might have thought, now I've won. But it was a picture of his ultimate defeat. On the cross, God assured his church, and his people of the ultimate defeat of Satan. In the cross, the victory of the kingdom of God over the kingdom of Satan is completely assured. It's a different kingdom, congregation, than what we would perhaps hope for. We're not that much different than the Jews in in Jesus' days. What were the Jews hoping for? What kind of a Messiah were they hoping for? They were hoping for a Messiah that would get rid of the Romans and restore the throne of David and and 
and the people of Israel to all their former glory under David and Solomon. And isn't that often, isn't that often what we hope for too? Something like that. Don't we want God to destroy all the wickedness in the world? Don't we want God to get rid of Satan once and for all so he can't hurt anyone ever again? Don't we want God to destroy the kingdom of darkness, which brings such horrific destruction into this world, suffering, pain, and grief? Isn't that what we long for? Don't we just want it all to end? Don't we want the church to be powerful, to be respected in this world? The congregation, we need to elevate our thinking. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. Even John the Baptist had his doubts. He sent his disciples to Jesus. Are you the one who is to come? Are you really the Messiah? Or are we looking for another one? What was Jesus' answer? The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. The poor have the good news preached to them. That is how Jesus reveals his kingdom. That is how the kingdom of heaven comes into your life, brothers and sisters. The kingdom of heaven is open to you through the preaching of the gospel. We confess that in the catechism too. The forgiveness of sins for sinners who throw themselves on the mercy of Jesus Christ. And note, this is not a kingdom of coercion. God is not a dictator, but it's a kingdom of grace. And God is our Father through Jesus Christ. A dictator simply commands compliance. But our King and Father, He is moved by love. And He moves us by His love. And so the kingdom of God is not based on force or violence or coercion. And its highest goal is not to claim the world for Christ, but its highest goal is to break into the hearts of individuals here and everywhere. That is how the kingdom of God advances. And so when we pray for the kingdom of God to come, we are asking God to annex us to His kingdom. That's what He did with His disciples. He commandeered their hearts by His grace, And he enlisted them as apostles and as soldiers in the army of the kingdom of heaven. And then he sent them out into the world. Right? And the book of Acts and the letters of Paul and further church history shows us how Christ our King has been and is still conquering the hearts of people everywhere. And when you pray, your kingdom come, you are praying to be taken along in this army, in the work of God's kingdom. And that is precisely where we also recognize the tension between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. The antithesis. It doesn't just exist out there, brothers and sisters. It exists right here in our hearts. You see, there's a a tension between what we confess and pray and, and what we do, isn't there? There's always this tension. When we look into our own hearts, we see this constant conflict that we have also in ourselves, like like what Paul writes about in Romans 7. 
The things that I want to do, I don't do. Things that I don't want to do, that's what I end up doing. And we can have all kinds of discussions about the kingdom of God and about the doctrine of the church, and that's all very important. But if the battle in our own heart is lost, then all of that doesn't matter, does it? And we certainly don't want to dis- diminish any of those, the importance of those things in any way. Also the need for evangelism and, and mission, the need to be politically active, the need to organize and defend Christian education, for example. All those things are vitally necessary. But if we do not, first of all, submit ourselves to the king of the kingdom of light, then those things don't mean anything. And that's why this petition is so important for us. It is the church who prays this petition. It's God's people who pray this petition. Christ gave this petition to His disciples, people who believed in Him. And so when we ask God to increase and preserve His church, when we ask God, Your kingdom come, we're asking Him, Lord, please make me a better citizen of Your kingdom. Because it's in our hearts that the greatest battle is always fought. Because isn't it true that the most difficult part of being a Christian is submitting to the king of the kingdom of light? And so with this petition, then, we are asking God, rule us by your spirit and word. God's kingdom doesn't come with worldly glory, but it comes when sinners fall to their knees in repentance. That is how the kingdom of God is advanced. And so we pray this petition in the first place for ourselves, not in the first place for unbelievers, but for ourselves, so that we might be useful soldiers in the kingdom of God, soldiers who serve the king faithfully. It brings me to our second point, how God's kingdom comes in the life of the church. So when we've prayed this for ourselves, we may also extend this petition to the church. Preserve and increase your church and destroy the works of the devil. That's how we put it in the catechism. Now it's true that the boundaries of the kingdom of God are larger than the boundaries of the church. The two are not equal. But we shouldn't play the two off against each other either. It's, it's not right for Christians to be enamored with the kingdom of God and and despise the church at the same time. For the kingdom exists for the sake of the church, and the church is the reason that the kingdom of God increases. The church represents the kingdom. How could God's kingdom come if there was no church? And so as the church spreads across the world, we see God's kingdom increasing. Because as we heard already, God's kingdom increases as people submit to Him. As more people come to faith, God is more and more acknowledged as the king of the kingdom of light. And therefore, we pray for the preservation and the increase of the church. God's church cannot be gathered and increased if it is, first of all, not preserved. So we pray that God would preserve her, that he would keep her, that he would guard her. Keep her, first of all, faithful to his word, so that he would preserve the church from heresy from legalism, from disunity, from schism. So what's the implication of this petition then for the church and for us as members of the church? 
Well, like any other petition, this is a prayer that calls us to both pray and work. You cannot pray, Lord, increase your church, and then keep your hand on your wallet. You cannot pray this petition and never ever talk to your neighbor or your coworker about the kingdom of light. You cannot pray for the preservation of the church and then live a lifestyle that shows that you don't really care about what it looks like to live in the church or to be ruled by the king of light. You cannot pray, Lord, preserve your church and then be indifferent to church membership or apathetic toward your involvement in church life. So, to put it positively, when you pray, your kingdom come, you are, you are giving yourself and your talents to the church. That's what it means for the preservation of the church and the increase of the church. Right? And there's so much to be done, isn't there? There are the sick and the lonely to be visited. That's not just the work of the office bearers. There are people who are in difficult circumstances. People need to be encouraged. We need to encourage one another through Bible study and praying together. There's so much church-related activity that needs our support. And above all, this is a petition for the ministry of the gospel, that the word would increase God's church. And when we pray for the increase of the church, well, fathers and mothers, that begins in the home, doesn't it? God's kingdom is increased through the generations. And so as parents, we must, and grandparents too, we must take the education of our children seriously, that we don't just leave that up to the catechism teacher or even to the Christian school. We have to take our baptismal promises seriously. And when you pray your kingdom come, you must also act in faith. And on the basis of that prayer, fulfill the promises that you made at your baptism. Instruct your children in the ways of the Lord. That's all included in this petition, your kingdom come. And we have to keep in mind, too, that it's not our church. Our confession is very careful to say this. Preserve and increase your church. So what are we, what are we saying that when we confess that in this Lord's Day? We're saying, Lord, keep us from becoming narrow-minded. Keep us from becoming smug in our own little world. Include us in the worldwide preservation and increase and gathering work of your kingdom. And give us courage also to support mission and be active for it. Make me bold to speak about Jesus. Help me, help me, Lord, to be a friend of sinners and protect the youth of the church and the people of the church so that your kingdom may come through them. And finally, we also have to take the devil seriously and his hatred for Christ's church. He continues to do whatever he can to prevent God's kingdom from coming in full power and glory. And the Catechism says, destroy the works of the devil and every power that exalts itself against you. We can never forget that Satan hates the Lord Jesus and hates his people and hates his church and hates the gospel. He hates, he hates it when you trust in God. He hates it when you live 
like the man described in Psalm 1. He hates it when you pray. He hates it when you repent of your sins. He is your enemy too. And if he cannot kill the church through open persecution and bloodshed, he will do it another way. One of his favorite tactics is to raise conspiracies against God's holy word. He loves to destroy our confidence in the gospel of grace. He loves it when we doubt God's grace. Can it really be for me? Does God really forgive me every day? And is it a free gift? He loves it when we ask those questions and start believing that it's not true for us. He doesn't want us to believe God's grace. He loves nothing better than to destroy our confidence in God's Word. And so this prayer summons us to battle. We have to know which side we stand on because there is a battle going on and we are in the middle of it. And the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan can never coexist forever. And so we must pray, continue to pray, your kingdom come. Lord, destroy the works of Satan. Destroy his evil works. The congregation, this is not a prayer of desperation. It's a prayer of confidence. That's our last point. For note what we confess at the end of Lord's Day 48. Do all this until... Note that word, until. Until the fullness of your kingdom comes, wherein you shall be all in all. We don't pray in order that your kingdom might come, but we pray until it does come. The possibility that it is not coming doesn't exist. Because He is King. You must expect that He can change your heart and that he will change your heart by his word and spirit as you submit to his will he will do that for you and because Christ is king we must expect that he will preserve and increase his church every time a faithful believer dies in the Lord we know the Lord has added another saint to those who are in heaven and every time another sinner repents, the Lord has added to his church another believer on this earth. And he will destroy, Christ will destroy every power that raises itself against him and his church. So today we still pray for the coming of God's kingdom while we're in the middle of the battle for that kingdom. But we pray from a perspective a victory congregation, a perspective of victory, and one day we will see what that looks like. We will see the grand finale of that victory when Christ comes and the trumpet will sound and we will see the Lord in the air. And then we will, we will see how he destroys his enemies and then the church will be vindicated. On that last day, it will be proven to everyone that we were right to trust in Him. And we will fully experience the results of Christ's victory on the cross. And then, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, Christ will hand over the kingdom to His Father, 
so he might be glorified, so that he might be all in all. Right? That's what we confess to. Do all this until the fullness of your kingdom comes, wherein you, that is God, shall be all in all. Because that's the ultimate purpose of the kingdom of God, congregation, that he would be glorified. That's what really matters. That is why the church is being gathered and preserved and increased. So God will receive all the honor and the glory. And that's why we can live in hope and assurance, because we know that this is going to happen. So brothers and sisters, let's live from that perspective. Amen.